Hello, Jim. Rachel. It feels like forever. Has it been forever? No, I mean, we just, we, we put out a new episode for those of you who care. We put out a new episode every two weeks. So we're, we're back two weeks later. Okay. Two weeks. I, I keep forgetting. That's what the process is. Yeah. Um, well, it does seem like a long time when you're away from me. I understand. I know it's true. <laughs> so tell so, us a little bit about our, um, we just finished talking to her and, and I kind of wish we had a little more time with her. It was hard going between the two books because they have really different topics. And I think both are really important. Um, but right. Well, Jane, Jane Kize was, um, was brought to my attention because we read a book in um, my, uh, my, my district about polarities and specifically education polarities. And it was, you know, we've been studying about polarities this year. And that was one of the reasons why I thought this topic, this polarity topic would be a good thing to explore in a podcast, right? Because there's tons well, of polarities in education. And especially our podcast. Our podcast, right? Because it's yes and no, K-N-O-W. So yeah. kind of that, you know, not yes or no, but yes and no. So really getting that and in there and yeah accepting what options there may be out there so um anyway she's she's written a lot of books one of which is about polarities and one is coming out in july educator bandwidth and um anyway i just thought i think she's a really interesting person comes from the business world what do you think it is about like i don't know like some educators are kind of like no business you know business people icky But she actually used the the personal pronoun talking about educators. She used I and we in reference to educators. So I think she has um, either adopted herself into our profession or she feels she's been here long enough. I mean, I, as an educator, loved my experiences with professors from the business school at University of Virginia. I I love um, reading Harvard Business Review. So I just think, um, again, it doesn't have to be either or. You don't have to be pro-business or pro-educators. We can find what is in the middle that helps us be the best humans and educators we want to be. And business world has a lot to do with it. Yep. That's right. So yes and no, Jane Kesey, with that note, education and business. Uh, Let's listen to her. All right. Hi, Jane. How are you today? Good. How are you doing? Good. And I'm Jim, I- I'm Jim Martin, and I'm the one who's been communicating with you. And this is Rachel Nance. Hello. Nice to meet you. I'm just taking off my background from this morning. <laughs> it's it's a beautiful background. What? Well, this is true. I mean, I can leave it on, or we can have the, uh, the whatever you prefer. I like it. Oh, that's good too. Yeah, yeah. So. All right. Well, Jane, thank you for um, agreeing to talk with us. Um, I read your book as part of a district that I 
have been working in the last year and we were studying polarities. And so um, I shared that with Rachel and that was sort of the impetus for starting this podcast. I've been doing a podcast that's called Little Things First before this, but um, we were starting our own podcast and we thought, you know, there's so much messiness in the middle that this could be a really good topic for us to talk about. So um, why don't you just go about introducing yourself and then maybe we can talk about polarities a little bit and then you have a new book coming out which I'm really excited about so yeah start with maybe a summary of who Jane is well who's Jane Kesey you know my my big impetus is trying to create help people create environments that everybody actually wants to be in Mm -hmm. (laughs) and so you know I do consult still in businesses uh but my heart is with schools I do most of my work with schools and uh the, the thought of polarity thinking is one of my core tools. The, the whole piece of so often we're trying to solve a problem once for, and for all when it can't be solved. There's two opposing sides that are equally valuable and we've got to listen to each other or the pendulum just keeps swinging. So, uh, you know, I've been a consultant for 20 or 30 years now and I work with leadership teams, but I also do instructional coaching and uh, a lot of things to help teams work better together. So that's sort of the core of it. Oh, and I have street cred with uh, secondary math teachers because I uh, actually used math in the real world when I uh, was a financial analyst. So oh, oh, great. Okay. So you come from the business world or you come from the education world? I really pretty much came from the business world uh, oh, and wow. uh, went into writing, got into consulting, got invited into schools. And so for the last 20 years, uh, it's mostly been schools. So it's oh, wonderful. You never know what is... happens when you volunteer for something. That's how I got in. You know, it was actually totally unrelated. And I was working with teams that needed to improve their skills. And I got invited into a school. And uh, that principal that invited me has been my co-author on two books. So oh, oh awesome. wonderful. Yeah. So the, the book that I'm referring to, I think, is Unlocking Differences. Is that right? Unleashing the Positive Power of Differences. I... Oh, great. So I got wow, the you totally failed right. that, Jim. You had uh, one job, Jim. Down. Okay. <laughs> I like so, your short title, though. <laughs> so tell us about the, that book. That, you know, uh, I was uh, introduced to, well, I had been thinking about writing a book on these pendulum swings in education. And so many of them are tied to our strengths. You know, there's a whole group of teachers that truly never needs phonics. We're hard, um, reading is symbols on paper and our brains are wired to do that automatically. And so if you talk to a lot of language arts teachers, they'll talk about how, well, I never needed phonics. All of a sudden one day I could read. Um, But a certain personality goes into the English department. Have you noticed that math teachers in general are a little different than the English department and they're different from who teaches business? And I'm not stereotyping. You know, we go into these things that are our strengths. Uh, And so then everyone around you may have the same strengths and kind of the same opinions on things. And so the English department could say something like, wow, whole language, this is really cool. We'll get kids excited about reading, let's dump phonics. Well, 70% of the population needs phonics. Uh, And so you get these pendulum swings because we don't understand where our beliefs come from. And so I had a whole list of these sorts of things and I wanted to write a book on um, 
10 battles we can stop fighting now in education. And my editor said, we're fighting enough battles. Let's not even bring up the word. Uh, and this was, this was 10 years ago. And then I went to a local professional association meeting and they were talking about the work of a, a general, a consultant named Barry Johnson, who had this idea called polarity thinking. And I looked at the books that Barry had written and one he'd co-authored with a colleague's co-author. You know, so one degree of separation, if that makes That's sense. That's right. So yeah, it was colleague, meant to be. I called my colleague and said, you know, I see you, you know, your co-author Roy's written with Barry. How, what do you know, Barry? And um, my colleague said, well, he, I was, he was in our office last month. <laughs> would you, would you like me to introduce you? And so um, Barry invited me to his three-day training on polarity thinking. This whole idea of when we're battling over an either or, there's often a both and. And yes. we can take all that wasted energy that we're using to debate and put it into energy to move forward together. If we can just figure out that common reason that we're really both <laughs> stuck on our own sides. Um, so Barry, you know, invited me. I met all these wonderful people going through this very intense, wonderful training. And then he read every chapter of what became the education book, because that's, you know, I did find a publisher with using this idea of both and thinking. Um, and Barry read every chapter. He introduced me to educators he'd worked with. So I just want to give a big shout out to Barry for um, supporting the work in education. Nice. That's great. And that's such a, it's such a great book because it walks you step-by-step step through how to introduce polarity thinking to maybe a staff and to really uh, think about issues that you're plagued with and, you know, as a, as a school uh, in, in different ways. And so I loved, I loved it for that reason. It was very practical. Thank you. If I you tend I tend to naturally be an either or thinker. Like I'm super black and white. I don't want to see gray. And and it's been like probably about seven years that I've been trying to really find the messy middle and being okay with that. And now it's it's really once you kind of get there. And of course, I still have relapses. But you know, it's like really liberating to, because it they both two things can be conflicting and true at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I do think that, especially in education, you know, we oftentimes want to think, well, they think the exact opposite of me, they must be jerks. But those people who are jerks are thinking that way because of core values that they have about education. So I think a lot of those conflicting truths, you know, are conflicting commitments. Really, we have to understand that deep underneath there's goodness in all of that most of that there's still some just bad folks with bad ideas but um yeah I love that I love I love your way of thinking about that what's what's really you know there's some basic principles about polarity thinking because there's a system involved and that's why would you get the pendulum swing you do too much on one side and your system corrects, whether it's because of parent pressure or um, students don't do well if you're over-focused on one side or the other. You know, th this is a system and that's how it works. And one of the principles is that um, people are so afraid of the downside of the other position that they ignore the downside of their own position. Mm. So a teacher like me who never needed phonics is so worried of boring students and not getting them to love actually reading that they over-focus on reading for choice, reading, um, you know, the, the, 
getting involved in the story and the literature to the neglect of the reading skills students need. Uh, and the other side's the other way. Wow, if these kids don't have phonemic awareness and phonics and um, you know flu fluency and all these things, they're never going to be able to read for pleasure. It'll be too difficult. And so we don't see, you know, you can't create a lifelong learner if the kids hate to read. And a lot of students won't learn to read if they don't, you know, they won't learn to love reading if they don't have phonics. So if you overfocus on one or the other side, you get the downside of both. That's how yeah. systems work. Yeah. So now you have, um, you had that book and oh, you've written many books, but there's a new one coming out called yes. Educator Bandwidth. Yes. So talk a little bit about where the idea for that book came from and when is yeah. it going to be out? The, it'll be out in July. If you okay. happen to be an ASCD member with, a, with the books um, coming to you, it's a premium member book. So, so you'll get it in July. Uh, that book came from a leadership development program I'd been involved in for many cycles with a big education organization. So I was an outside coach uh, and they, they had a cohort of leaders every other year that had been nominated by leaders to go through a two-year training program. It was a wonderful leadership development program. And I was keynoting at the opening um, uh, of their, their program. So their sponsors were there, their, um, their managers, leaders were there and their spouses and other people in the program. And I was talking to my colleague about how there, this group wasn't like the other groups. It, you know, we'd done this four times, four rotations over like a five-year period. And this group was apologizing for missing meetings. Uh, we were having just terrible times getting them to organize their 360 feedback and get those things in. And they kept saying, I don't have time. I don't have time. So, you know, keynoters have a little bit of power. <laughs> and uh, my colleague and I, uh, Ann Holm, who's my co-author on this book, she's an executive coach with a background in speech and language pathology for brain injured adults. Uh, so she's got a deep neuroscience background that complements my much more pragmatic uh, tools that I use in leadership development. And uh, so Anne and I came up with 15 questions that I read aloud to see if how they were working matched how our brains actually work. Things like I turn off interruptions when I have to concentrate. Uh, I space intervals uh, and plan for uh, delays so that I'm not stressed when I get to a meeting. You know, I put space in between things and um, I don't text while I drive. And, um, you know, I actually eat a fairly healthy diet, although you can all binge occasionally, don't get me wrong. And as I just read the questions orally and there were groans around the room, people scored as low as 10 out of 60 on our original survey. And one of the things that Ann and I are really emphasizing right now is that that happened in 2015. All of this wow. lack of time, of stress, of everything else was going on long before the pandemic. Yeah. And if people don't um, change things to match the way we really work, uh, it's going to continue after the pandemic. The pandemic was like a dust storm that, or, you know, things were already eroding and the pandemic was a dust storm that let us see how bad things were. Mm -hmm. So that, that's where it came from. Since then, um, our wonderful colleagues uh, gave it to all kinds of uh, the, the survey. We've morphed it now. It has 32 questions. It's been validated by one of our buddies who loves to, um, you know, he actually said, you've got data. Can I play with it? He's, he's a professor at the University of Michigan, Greg Husko. So um, we know 
that if if a group of educators um, score low on feeling that their organization supports them in being efficient, they're going to have low individual bandwidth. And your bandwidth is the the power for your executive function, which includes uh, your emotional intelligence, your ability to make good decisions, your ability to not eat that donut and maybe go to the gym if you were planning on going to the gym, to be patient with those you love and your students. Um, And if you use up your bandwidth for one activity, you won't have it for the next thing that comes along. It's like your fuel tank. You can make the fuel tank bigger by using better practices, but I bet this has happened to you, that you've been in a really tense meeting and either you turn around and um, don't eat what you intended for lunch or you snap at the next person that comes near you. You know, you hold it together for that tense meeting. Um, They did research and if people are doing cross easy crossword puzzles, they'll eat radishes off a snack table. If they've been doing hard math problems, they go straight for the chocolate. That's bad. (laughs) Have we been conditioned to do that though? Well, you know, these are pretty robust, you know, I didn't do the research, but they were pretty robust research studies looking at, you know, control groups and what happens. Um, So I I understand. I mean, I just mean like, does, does my body want the donut or am I, has society told me messages that when you have a stressful moment, go to sugar? Maybe it's a stupid question, but I'm just wondering, is that, is it more like a mental craving or is it like a a physical craving because of the stress? What you bring up two really good points. One is that we've slid into norms that aren't helpful, whether it's, I have to keep uh, answering emails at the soccer game or I won't have time to do it later. So we don't do a good job on the emails when we're not present for our child's soccer game, right? We get the downside of both. So that's one piece of it. We've slid into norms. But then the second thing is that um, we have um, habits that we've formed. And, you know, we need habits. If we didn't have habits, uh, you know, we'd still be trying to decide what to wear in the morning and, you know, some of those simple things uh, um, that, that we do, what kind of television we do like to watch. And actually television relaxes our brain. If you're not binge watching, there's a place for it in your life in case you're worried. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, a habit is a mental wiring of your, your brain. You've actually moved how things are connected. And so to get rid and a habit usually has a trigger like, stress, I want bread or whatever versus, ooh, I love a well-crafted croissant from the local bakery. I'll have that for a special treat. That's more of a routine. Can you hear the difference? And so, you know, one of the chapters is actually on what's the research on changing a habit so that it's easier. Um, You know, what are the big strategies that actually work? Because there's a lot of folklore out there. Uh, (laughs) There's a lot of people who don't know what they're talking about. I don't want to name any movie star names or anything. Um, but, uh, you know, we were trying to just say, Hey, here's the best tips. So, um, that's, you know, that's the, the in, what's really interesting is we were thinking, cause we contracted the book in about January, 2020, and we're writing it during the pandemic and watching things happen. And part of us was thinking maybe the book should have already been out there and it won't be relevant. And we're actually finding the opposite is true that yeah. um, because 
teachers are pushing back against self-care. Self-care is part of a polarity <laughs> with my responsibility for my bandwidth, my mental health, and my organization's responsibility. Um, there's a new phrase of cruel optimism. Uh, and, and the idea is if you're telling people it's all within your control, when actually the systems and structures and culture in which they're working is keeping them from, um, you know, their personal responsibility can only do so much. The organization and, and society also has a part. So in the book, yeah. we talk about, hey, here's the piece that the learning community is responsible for, rather than telling the teachers self-care and your stress will go away. It, it's a both and. So just, just segueing back to that, that piece. Okay. Yeah, that's really so does your Does your book give ideas to leaders of said organizations of what, how to enact those responsibilities? You bet. <laughs> Do you want to for, share for some thing, of those? Give a little highlight. One thing, you know, we've got we've got six categories that came out of, um, you know, our buddy actually did factor analysis, um, which is a statistical method where you take all the questions and see how they bunch, and uh, you know, it it some of the groupings. Anne and I were thinking, how do we label this group? What do they have in common? It's it's a it's a you have to pull back from your assumptions, and really think. Uh, what is this getting at? What's the overall connection? So um, the categories are, um, you know, getting your priorities straight because you'll never balance work and life perfectly forever. That's another polarity. And mm -hmm. people who are at peace with the decisions they're making um, feel in control of it. Um, so we, you know, we look at what does it mean to be in balance? Um, so that's, that's the first one. And then it's um, how well you can focus. Uh, societies take, you know, um, there's a lot of things that have helped us lose our focus. People, you know, have a trouble, hard, hard time uh, just sitting still with uh, some of the great novels that they used to enjoy, for example. That's just a simple thing. Um, so that's a whole category because if you can't focus, then you waste a lot of time trying to get things done. Then there's the uh, filtering of either your choices or the information available. Just a little example. Uh, uh, Anne did a workshop last week with teachers, and as she went through getting filters so that you're not wasting your time looking at choices that really aren't applicable, one of the teachers said, you know, over the weekend, I spent 90 minutes finding the perfect invitation for a baby shower. Five years from now, would I have rather spent that time with my children on lesson plans or looking for baby shower invitations? So that's the idea of filtering. Um, then there's fuel. And yep, it's exercise, sleep, and diet. I hate to tell you this, but <laughs> um, we go into the science of it and, and the easiest low-hanging fruit on how you can get a handle on that with what works for you. Uh, and then we've got um, making time work for you. Everybody has 24 hours in the day, and there's some core practices that help you um, make the most of your time. Uh, one of them I already mentioned, that, that bit of slack. Uh, you know, you don't plan every minute. Yeah. You actually... Um, James, when was the last time a day one is planned for you? <laughs> yeah, no, you, I can't remember one. <laughs> you know, and so just saying, you know what, it's going to take me longer actually is a bandwidth. Um, you know, it fuels your gas tank because you don't your, your brain tank because you don't get as far behind. It's like, oh, I, I made I made a uh, allowance for traffic. And so I'm not going to be late. Um, I won't have the time to to. Um, meditate for five minutes before the meeting, but I'm not going to be late. Um, 
And what's the last one? My mind's just, uh, oh, um, staying connected in the right way. Um, we've talked a lot about how people who already had good connections with colleagues and um, good connections with colleagues actually, I can't go into this whole bit, but it actually um, releases the um, hormones that protect your heart from stress. It's that core to have um, a, a collective um, learning environment where teachers um, are supporting each other in that way. And it doesn't mean every second of a, or, you know, you always have to be doing these touchy feely things that some people object to in staff meetings, but you have to actually have relationships and people who had them before zoom had no trouble maintaining them. They didn't get the kind of zoom fatigue that um, was talked about in the same way. So those are the six categories. And in every chapter, there's five ways for individuals to increase their bandwidth and five top-down things that school leaders should think about. Wow. So yeah, it's the individual and the organization. Yeah, I was just, I just got off a coaching call with the principal um, down in Southern Utah. She works on the, in a school on the reservation and, you know, they're getting their end of year data back and their kids weren't in school last year. Um, and so they really had two years of catch up and she's like, the data is not looking great. And we knew it wasn't going to, but it's still hard to see it. And so we were talking about how can you connect with your people and let them celebrate themselves? How can you authentically celebrate their work? How can you identify wins that you all had this year? Um, and do it in a way that doesn't then put more burden on her right? To Mm -hmm. make everybody happy. I was like, that's not your job to make everybody happy, but you can create time and space for them to celebrate themselves and celebrate each other. So we were kind of brainstorming what that could look like. Cause I think that that's a big thing this year is, you know, especially for educators, it's been, we thought last year was hard. This year was even harder. Um, So how to make sure we end the year in on a really positive note. And that message that um, it isn't all the administrator's burden either is really, really important for school leaders. Uh, One of the ones I'm coaching, uh, that that was actually um, one of the leadership goals she set because she she had been bending over backward. If she heard that a teacher was truly stressed, then she was thinking, what what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? And again, it's this polarity, um, you know, they, this may sound crazy, but the best thing the teacher might do is take a 20 minute nap before she drives home. So, um, you know, it's actually one of the first things we start with when we work with teams, because everybody laughs, you know, we talk about power naps, which if you want to focus, if you want to be kind, if you want to um, get more work done in less time, take a nap. I mean, this is, we're wired to take a nap eight hours after we wake up, our body temperature drops. And I have an app on my phone that, um, uses the the level in the phone to tell me it's called the power nap app and you can oh, wow. this for 20 minutes and it if, if it senses that you're going down into that deep sleep where your breathing changes it wakes you up earlier than the 20 minute nap oh wow. so that's why i've been ta- i love naps and i was talking to my friend, friends about that and they were like well i hate that feeling that you get when you wake up from a nap and you're kind of groggy and that 
that's probably why, right? They sleep too long. That's why Salvador Dali, yeah, he napped with a spoon and let it drop on the concrete so he woke up. Uh, Oh, wow. (laughs) Didn't know that. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. But, you know, Um, everyone laughs. How can a teacher take a power nap? Well, um, number one, if you've got an hour to prep, and you've got, I always call it that head stuff, like it's like your head stuffed with a banana and you can't think. If you stop and take like a 15 minute nap within your hour, you'll get as much done in that whole hour yeah. as if you worked for 75 minutes. That's right. how our brains work. Powering yeah. through thinking you can, oh, I, I need to work, you know, the full 60 minutes, you'll get less done and it won't be as high quality. So right. We play, you know, we play the yes and game on, or the what I like about that game on, you know, how could a teacher take a nap? And someone throws out an idea like, well, you know, teachers with small children, maybe they should, you know, come to school 10 minutes early and nap before they even start. Well, what I like about Mm -hmm. that is, (laughs) you know, and we just go back and forth looking for the solution and make people experiment with with doing it because 15 to 20 minutes to get everybody to be patient and kind uh, as well as focus and uh, make better decisions. It seems like a pretty good trade-off to me. Yeah, for exactly. Sure. So I wonder a little bit about like middle managers, you know, which I, I principals, unfortunately, are a little bit of a middle manager. So how do they kind of, I mean, there are great suggestions in your book, obviously, which I can't wait to read and things that principals can do in collaboration with teachers, but sometimes there are just like distractions from up on high, right? So district level, state level, federal level, I mean, whatever the case might be. And so how do, how do principals navigate that terrain? Uh, As far as changing some of the norms or as far as finding focus? Well, just, you know, providing what needs to be provided with, for teachers, with teachers, uh, for educator bandwidth to increase that when there are so many competing demands coming from other places. So this is one of the reasons we created a validated survey because the survey also includes um, uh, teacher questions as far as outcomes, such as I'm able to meet my goals with students. Uh, you know, I feel supported. I feel a sense of self-efficacy. Um, my efforts making a difference, those kinds of outcome questions. And when those start to dwindle, because we, we, can, we can give um, a survey that produces an aggregated report. So a school can see where are teachers doing okay, where are the points that we should be concerned about. And what we frequently see is um, teacher, if teachers are so dedicated, you know, I hope people have really figured that out after the last two years of how they hit the ground running. Um, and, and we're so phenomenally creative, even if um, things have been, you know, like, like you said that, you know, getting, getting the data or, you know, keeping every student at, at grade level and making that yearly progress um, was affected by many factors besides what the teachers were doing. They did a phenomenal job. So um, a lot of them still have that sense of efficacy that what I'm doing makes a difference. And they're scoring really low on individual bandwidth. So we ask how sustainable is this? You know, or do you wanna fix it now? And then we can delve down into which areas are there actual problems? You know, just for example, um, since we've been talking about the focus side, if teachers are reporting that they can't get um, 
So, so let me back up. There's, there's some core research that um, most humans, if, if you're doing a deep task, like um, providing student feedback on essays, where you've really got to be thinking if the feedback's going to be good, or you're planning a lesson, or as an administrator trying to work out that gnarly schedule for next year, you need to concentrate, right? And our brains do best when we have about 52 minutes without interruption and then take a 17 minute break. Now those are averages. If you're really in flow, you should not set an alarm and at 52 minutes go get it, you know, go look out the window or something. But um, how often do teachers and educators get that 52 minutes? Rarely, so if ever. There's a whole lot of time being wasted because if you have to keep starting over and get back to that, like, like if you are interrupted it takes you 24 minutes to get back to the same level of concentration you had before the, the even if it's a one minute interruption. Um, and so, you know, we, we talk about, do you have a space in the school where when a teacher needs to be doing something without interruption, they can go to it. Or um, I was teaching this at learning forward and the principals in the room said, let's take some time and hear how our peers here are finding this time when they need it. And a lot of them said, I go off site. You know, if wow. I've got the grant to finish and it's due at 6 p.m. or we can't get the money, I leave campus and I am responsible for having um, the backup plan for if, if something happens in the building um, that someone has knows how to take care of it. So does that start to, you know, uh, but but a data, you know, going up with the data and saying, look at this, my teachers are here. Here's where they're doing good. Um, you know, I want to point out that they've got A, B, C, and D. They are, you know, with us. And here's what I'm really worried about. If you ask us to do this, um, this extra initiative, um, you know, that's, <laughs> it's the polarity of reality and vision. You know, it might be the greatest vision in the world, but if it doesn't match time and resources and energy and student needs and what else is going on, um, it's no, it, it's not a vision. It's, it's, you're going to get the downside of both. Your other initiatives won't be met and you won't get um, this new one either. That's re that's a polarity. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so I, I have a question I want to ask. And I would be really annoyed if someone asked me this question. So I'm going to apologize up front um, because it's, I mean, it, so my question is, and you use the word sustainability, which I, I think is really important. And I kind of think it's impossible in education. So we, we are short teachers. We're short leaders. We're short district staff. We're short paraprofessionals. Like, our profession is waning in just regard to people being people interested in being in this profession. The people that we do have coming into our profession don't plan to be here for 32 years. Like the rest, like the older generations were planning, right? They're like, yeah, I'll try a couple of years in an urban school. I'll try three years at a reservation school. I'll go teach internationally. You know, and then eventually I'll go into the Silicon Valley or whatever. So when you think about bandwidth, because I, I do think that while we all were feeling pressured before COVID, right? I mean, I've been working with principals on doing observation and feedback cycles for five years now as a consultant. And 
five years ago, they were saying, I can't do it. There's not enough time. But now even more, like the pandemic has really taken our time. Um, is, are we sustainable? Like as educators, how do we take care of the people in our buildings, the adults in our buildings in a way that helps them stay a little bit longer or helps them leave not because they are dissatisfied, but because they are looking for something new, right? And how do we get more people into the profession? Because I think society-wise, we have a pretty bad reputation. Um, so I just, I, in regard to bandwidth, is it possible to really help our adults feel successful and efficacious and part of an important process? So on the very pragmatic short-term side, every school we've used this with has found, every organization we've used this with through looking at the data and, um, has found things they need to change immediately that will help. Okay. And some of it is incredibly simple and has just never been thought of because we slid into these norms. You know, even Steve Jobs in 2007 didn't know what this was gonna do to us. And that's just yeah. one piece of it that we're always on, always available. And actually, you know, when was the last time you stood in a line and didn't check your phone? When yeah. we daydreamed, that actually um, let us think about our, we were subconsciously processing often um, encounters we'd had with other people and developing our EQ and thinking about how to do better. I mean, that's just one of the things that goes on with downtime that we've robbed ourselves of now. So um, when people start understanding these things, they think about the little norms that they want to change as simple as, you know what, there aren't going to be any more meetings on Monday mornings. Um, it's not rocket science to realize that teachers need that time to get ready for the week. Uh, you know what, we don't have to send out seven emails during the week, we can consolidate it all. And oh, by the way, if we send it on Friday, they're going to think they have to answer it all before the weekend. And that's stressful. So when do we want to send it? Um, a lot of schools, even before the pandemic, had figured out that staff meetings are dumb. Um, that if it can be <laughs> done in an announcement, don't waste people's time. That is professional development time. That is PLC, PLC team time. Um, and so what I'm saying is, uh, there's this piece of um, how did we get to where we are and what we can change, what can we change right now? And in the schools where the leaders have said, these are the things we're changing, there's applause in the room. Mm. I mean, people are like, oh my gosh, that is going to help. Uh, you know, let's, let's give teachers 15 minutes between the end of that before school meeting and when school starts instead of 10 or five. Mm. Um, it should make sense to everyone. So just that, let, let's pull back and think about how things um, are interfering, who really has to be at a meeting, you know? Um, and uh, so that, that's a piece of it. That, and are we asking people to do so much? I, you know, initiative fatigue does not have to be. Um, we can be, you know, reality and vision is one of my hugest ones with leaders. If I can get a superintendent to understand what is feasible, you know, and it's not about having um, a smaller vision for student learning. If you, if you overcommit, nothing's going to happen. You can have the same yeah. vision. Um, yeah, you can send a man to the moon in eight years, but you got to understand that NASA hired another 360,000 people, I think, to do it. You can check the blog on my website if you want the exact number. Um, 
you know, it, yeah, you can do it, but are you going to put in those resources or are yeah. you going to be realistic? Um, so that's the, uh, you know, I can say that it works and that teachers, um, you know, and, and, other, you know, I haven't done this just with schools. I've done it with other organizations and they find things that actually help in the short term. Um, but then there's that piece of, you're absolutely right, Rachel, that we've got things going in education that, that um, really could keep us from um, going for the long haul with what we want to see in a democracy for our public schools. So now you can get me on my soapbox about, you know, what other countries do. And there are a lot of other countries, you know, I do work around the world. And so I'm familiar with, um, we, we certainly aren't the worst. We're not the best. Um, often we want the results that other countries are getting without actually doing what they're get doing. You know, like uh, the last time I checked, Hong Kong only teaches half of the standards that are tested on the PISA and they get some of the highest scores. And we're so nervous, you know, we want to teach it all. And of course you don't end up teaching much. Um, Finland, you know, people are paid for that first year of, of teaching, what we call student teaching, where, you know, you pay more to do the equivalent of what a doctor does as an intern. Uh, I just heard our um, new secretary of education, um, please, if you know his name, put it in, my mind's blank. Um, starts with a C. Yeah, Cardona, isn't it? Thank you. At ASCD, um, he talked about some programs where, um, number one, universities are teaming with the high school. And that first education course is taught by a teacher in the high school that the students already love. Mm. And they're close, you know, they're, they're starting. It's like an advanced placement course in partnership with the university. Um, somewhere else, you know, it is what really should have been long ago that that student teaching year is actually the kind of mentorship that a, that a physician gets. In, and, and I don't want our teachers working 24 seven, like fewer interns are doing. Um, they're learning that it's not a real good idea to have an intern up 24 hours and making decisions. Um, but that, you know, um, Finland teachers get, or China teachers get three hours a day to plan and look at student work and collaborate and troubleshoot because um, you can have the best fractions lesson in the world. And the next year you get a new batch of students and it doesn't work <laughs> and it takes time to figure it out. So, um, you know, do we, do we really want our schools doing the best work? Um, and, and besides looking at what really works, not what, what we, you know, time and seat and um, other things that, you know, actually don't work. Um, <laughs> then we have to figure out how we're going to get the political clout to come through because teachers have always said we're in it for the kids. Um, and that's allowed others to be making decisions for us. And I don't want to yeah. say too much, um, but yeah. I think that's true. You know, yeah. it's been done to us. All right. So there is hope. I hear you saying there's hope. There's short-term hope. Long-term, we do need some serious work. Yeah, I really like some of the Cordova's suggestions. I think that we could we could take those a lot further and it would help our universities too. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I, I feel kind of rejuvenated by this conversation. You have such a such a strong um, argument for for how we can improve things. And I, I really feel encouraged by that. So I hope I think that that's probably what what I'm feeling from you today is probably what we'll find in the book and it'll be something that we can just like the polarity book we can really use in our schools to to make a difference and i want to give a shout out to the school leaders that let us try it you know that 
um, number one, had the guts to let their teachers take the survey. You know, were yeah, they going to find out that everybody hated them? I mean, that's, that's yeah. not what the questions are about. You can go to web to my website. There's a version of the the survey that's free of charge. Just scroll down the the uh, homepage to the waterfall picture, um, and that's where the the link is. Um, and uh, you know, just see what it's about. But you know, those those early leaders, you know, kind of put their their necks out um, to look at the, have their leadership team look at that data. Uh, and see what they were doing well. And um, so I really want to give them credit. And then all the teachers that have, um, you know, taken ownership of your right part of this, I can, I can really help myself, even as I see that um, I need to, to keep advocating for certain things to happen in the school. Yeah, thank you so much. We'll make sure to link your website to our podcast and make sure that they know what resources are out there specifically from you and looking forward to seeing your book out in July. Congratulations. I'm excited. It doesn't get old. I'll just say that. (laughs) Okay. Sounds like a really important contribution to the field. So thank you, Jane. Thank you. Yeah. And thanks for spending time with us. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.